Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of the MindRenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 13th of May 2015. I'm very pleased to welcome to the programme Dr. Mike Lycona, who is Associate Professor of Theology at Houston Baptist University and President of RisenJesus.com. Dr. Lycona earned his PhD in New Testament Studies with distinction from the University of Pretoria, and he is the author and editor of numerous books, including The Resurrection of Jesus, and another book on the resurrection co-authored with Gary Habermas, who we're delighted to have on this program about a year ago or so, and um, Evidence for God, co-edited with William Dembski. He is a member of the Society of Biblical Literature, the Institute for Biblical Research, and the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and he is a debater and frequent speaker on university campuses and radio and TV. Dr. Lycona, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Well, thank you, Julian. Wonderful to be on your program. Well, it's actually amazing how this worked out because, I mean, I had actually hoped one day to speak with you because I'd heard you on various radio shows and things in the past. And it just so happened that when Nick Peters was on the show a few weeks ago, he mentioned that you are, in fact, his father-in-law. Um, <laughs> and he said that you might be up for coming on the program. So it's amazing how that worked out. So thanks very much for coming on. Well, you're welcome. Yeah, Nick's a really sharp guy. And yeah, I'm proud to have him as a son-in-law. And I guess you must be proud also of what he's doing there at Deeper Waters Ministries. Yeah, it's a, a really good ministry that's that's growing, and uh, I'm amazed. You know, he's uh, he has Asperger's, and that helps him and hinders him in certain ways. But he is just a brilliant guy; just knows a lot of stuff. Yeah, he said on the show that uh, one of the things about having that condition was it really focuses his mind so that he can really concentrate on something in a way that most people can't. So, in some ways, he says it's a gift. Yeah, I would agree. Wow. Um, now, as I said in the intro, you've done a fair number of debates over the years with quite prominent opponents of Christianity, such as Bart Ehrman and Richard Carrier and uh, Shabir Ali. And uh, I've always thought the idea of actually doing a debate is pretty scary. Actually, I mean, I've posted some. That's a different matter. <laughs> but actually doing it always seems to me to be a pretty nerve wracking kind of thing. Um, how do you find doing debates? Well, it uh, yeah. At the first several debates that I had were very, uh, I was very nervous. Um, at least up until the point when the debate started, and then I became quite relaxed. I remember the first time I debated Shabir Ali. It was my second debate, and he had debated oh, who knows how many times? Maybe a hundred times at that point, or dozens at least. Wow. And a very, very experienced and skilled debater. And I have to admit that afternoon right before the debate, my chest hurt. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, yeah, I used to, and I still get nervous before uh, the debates, not nearly as much as I used to. What was it like with Bart Ehrman? How did you find that one? Well, I prepared really diligently for that. Uh, my first debate with him, I, I probably put in 50 hours a week for five months or even a little longer than that. So, uh, wow. you know, he was an experienced debater. He had taken debate classes, you know, in, in high school or college. And so he was skilled at it. And he'd been in scholarship a whole lot longer than me. Uh, I found his arguments quite weak. But, you know, when you get in the in the debate arena and you're front, in front of people, you have to know your stuff. Um, yeah. It's not time to kind of wing it. You have to know it on the spot. You either know it or you don't. So I really studied hard on, you know, read everything that he'd written on the subject, watched debates that he had done on the subject. Fortunately, on the resurrection, it's something that I had studied a lot. And the philosophy of history, since he claimed to be a historian, not a theologian or a philosopher, you know, this was my area. 
studying Jesus and, and what had happened there as a historian rather than as a theologian or, or philosopher. Listening to his arguments that he gave against William Lane Craig a little before that in a debate, I thought, now this guy really hasn't studied the philosophy of history, historical method. So um, I have a, a little bit over him in this area. So, you know, anyway, I prepared really diligently for it and felt prepared when I went into those debates with him. No, it's very, very brave of you to do that, actually. And uh, well, I, mean, I presume you found the debate with Richard Carrier a bit easier than that. Actually, I found Carrier to be more of a challenge than the one with Ehrman. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, I don't think Carrier's arguments are better than Ehrman's by any means. Mm. But He's a good performer, is he? Well, Ehrman's a good performer. Um, in fact, yeah. I think it's, it's hard to have a better orator than Bart Ehrman, you know, at least on that side. But with Richard Carrier... He's a knowledgeable guy. He's very smart. Um, he's got this um, persona about him that uh, he comes across as very authoritative. But his, a lot of his views are, are extreme. Some are even bizarre. And they're not held. You know, many of them are not held by the academic community, even by skeptics like Ehrman, even by atheist New Testament scholars. So, for folks like him and Bob Price, you know, both of them are very well read. They're very smart, but their their ideas are so bizarre on the fringe that they're just not discussed within scholarship. Um, so as a result, some of the things that they say may come as a surprise. Yet you really have to look into it, and you know, it's just different. So I would say Richard Carrier is probably the toughest debate opponent I've had. Yeah, I can imagine that would be very difficult to prepare for that because I'm, presumably you don't quite know where he's coming from at any particular moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, what kind of background do you come from? I mean, you're, you know, obviously you're currently you're teaching theology at this Baptist university, but how did you get into do that? I mean, were you brought up as a Christian in the first place? I was. I come from a Christian background. Um, I did become a Christian around the, I, I think, at the age of 10. You know, grew in my faith, especially during... Uh, my college years, I went to a Christian university, and then I went to uh, you know, graduate school at an evangelical university, Liberty University, uh, where I focused, specialized in learning New Testament Greek. Um, so yeah, I, I came from a conservative Christian background, but it was during my graduate studies back in uh, the fall of 1985 when I was wrapping up my coursework that I just began to have some reservations about my faith. And it wasn't any kind of objections I'd heard. It was a matter of, you know, how do I know that this is really true? I mean, this has been the only view I've ever been exposed to. If, uh, if Christianity is not true, I'm devoting my life to a fairy tale. And I, I didn't want to do that. And something as important as eternity. Hmm. You know, I, I, so this didn't come because people were actually throwing objections at you. This came from within yourself, you say? Yeah, it was just something that came up within. And you've since those days, of course, you've been bombarded and bombarded with all sorts of objections which you've had to think through and find answers to. So presumably, of course, you found that your faith has stood up to all of that. Yeah, and I would say, Julian, that, you know, at first when I heard objections, I would try to answer them just because I assumed Christianity was true and so there must be valid answers to this. Um, later on, when I was doing my doctoral work, heavily engaged in the philosophy of history and historical method. You know, one thing the philosophers of history say is you have to do your best to be, if you want to be a good historian, 
to detach yourself from your de- desired outcome while your investigation proceeds, that every historian is biased in one way or another. There's no such thing as an entirely objective or neutral historian. That's a myth. So, if, you know, I had to admit that I was biased, that I was ne- not neutral, and that it really could compromise the integrity of my historical investigation on the resurrection of Jesus. And so while that investigation was initiated because I wanted to find another way to argue for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, it didn't take me long into the program because I know I'm a second guesser and because I have struggled with doubts, even strong doubts, where I almost jettisoned my Christian faith uh, numerous times throughout my life. Uh, starting in you know my mid twenties, and even to this this very day, I, I suppose you could say that I, I'm plagued with doubts. They're not as strong now as they used to be, but precisely because I'm a second guesser and I'm wired to doubt, um, I wanted my investigation of the resurrection of Jesus to be as thorough and as neutral, objective, fair-minded as was within my power to do. And it was for me, it became an investigation for me to get to the truth and to follow that truth no matter where it led. So whereas it initially started off as an objective to argue for the truth of the resurrection through another means, it didn't take long. And that objective changed to say, all right, I need to know the truth about this for me. Mm. Yeah, and I'm glad you shared with us this fact of doubt which of course we all struggle with because I mean if you're a public figure as indeed you are it can come over to people that of course you're totally certain about everything all the time you know you're never looking over your shoulder but of course that's that's not what we're like as human beings and we we do tend to wonder don't we you know am I always in the right here so I'm, I'm glad you shared that with us um, now of course what we're going to be talking about today is the differences between the New Testament Gospels Matthew Mark mm-hmm. Luke and John and in particular what quite a lot of people see as contradictions and I'm putting that in inverted commas because I don't want to say they are contradictions I don't want to say they're not at the moment uh, between those gospels now I've got quite a number of passages that I want to ask you about as we go through but I'd like first to ask you for your kind of general position on this whole question because um you know you've done all this research you've in an email to me you said you've been working specifically on this kind of area for about seven years or so so this is a huge question but forgive me for it but could you give us a kind of taster of some of the main insights that you've gained over these years into these kinds of questions, differences and contradictions between the Gospels, just some of the sort of main insights that you have into that kind of issue. Sure, yeah. Since this is my primary area of research for the last seven years, um, yeah, it's a topic that's near and dear to me at this point. I think the most important thing I could say, and Gary Habermas was really instrumental in helping me with this because I really struggled with seeing these differences at first. And he said, Mike, did Jesus rise from the dead? And I said, yes. You believe that? Yes. Why do you believe that? Well, because the historical evidence suggests it. What kind of historical evidence are you talking about? Well, I think the primary historical evidence would be, let's say, Paul. You know, he's, he's writing before any of the Gospels, most likely. We can certify that he was a non-believer, even very, very hostile to the early Christian church persecuting, arresting, imprisoning, and consenting to the executions of Christians. And then all of a sudden, he had an experience that he was convinced was the risen Jesus who had appeared to him, and it radically transformed his life from being a persecutor of the church to one of its most able defenders. Then 
you know, he's willing to suffer and even dies as a martyr, a Christian martyr, for his gospel proclamation. We can certify that Paul presented his gospel before the Jerusalem apostles, uh, that, or that he was preaching the same gospel message that they were preaching. We get this on Paul's own testimony, uh, that he was preaching what they were preaching can certainly be inferred through the writings of Clement of Rome and Polycarp, who were probably disciples of the apostles Peter and John, respectively. We can show through his letters that Paul was very careful not to commingle what his teachings, even authoritative apostolic teachings that were binding in the church, he was careful not to commingle those teachings with the Jesus tradition. So given his respect for the Jesus tradition, given his testimony that he preached the same gospel the disciple, the Jerusalem apostles were preaching, that they had certified that he was, and, and so forth, that I think we can say that when we read Paul on the gospel essentials, which, of course, included the resurrection of Jesus, we are likewise hearing the voice of the Jerusalem apostles. So through Paul's writings, aside from the gospels at all, we can establish what the Jerusalem apostles were preaching. And I think we can use that as a case historically to establish uh, the high probability that Jesus was actually raised. Mm. Did you want to say something? Well, I was just very interested by the fact that everything you've said there is as an historian. You've never once said, the Bible says such and such, and because I believe the Bible, therefore I believe what it says in there. You've come at it from completely the other way around by saying, you know, you can establish this and you can establish this. I mean, all those things can be argued about, of course, but that's what academics do. But nevertheless, you've come at it from an historian's point of view, which I find very interesting. Yeah, well, again, when I came to the work on the resurrection of Jesus, you can't assume that the Bible's God's word. You can't assume that it's inspired, inerrant, right. infallible, or anything like that, or even authoritative. That's not to say you can't believe those things. As a historian, you could, ne- you could never establish that the Bible is inerrant or that it's divinely inspired. You can only look at it and say, you know, what are the things that I can prove with, a, you know, relative degrees of, of certainty? So, you know, you know, when I said those kinds of things to Gary, he said, all right, Mike, so if Jesus rose from the dead, and we think that he did in either April of the year 30 or April of 33, when he rose from the dead, was Christianity true? Yes. Okay, when was the first piece of New Testament literature written? Well, you know, it's either First Thessalonians or Galatians, and it would have been in the late 40s, you know, close to the year 50. All right, so let's say we're talking 15 to 20 years between when Jesus rose and the first piece of New Testament literature was written. All right, so if Christianity was true at the resurrection, was it true during those 15 to 20 years before the first piece of New Testament literature was written? Yes. All right, when was the first gospel written? Uh, Mark, you know, we don't really know. Uh, exactly, but the standard date is between 65 and 70. All right, Mike, so we're talking, you know, about 35 to 40 years after the resurrection. So that's the first gospel. When was the next gospel written? Well, scholars think that might have been Matthew or Luke, and maybe that's around the year 70 to 80. We just don't know. Let's call it 70. It's written a few years after Mark. So year 70, now we're talking about 40 years after the resurrection, but that's when your first contradictions would occur. So was the resurrection true before Matthew was written? Well, of course. Was Christianity true then? Yes. Well, then how could contradictions in Matthew negate the truth of Christianity, which was true before Matthew was even written? So that was kind of like the general line of the argument he gave. And I thought, whoa, that's, uh, that makes a whole lot of sense. So he said, let's just say there are some errors and contradictions in the Gospels. What does that mean for Christianity? I said, well, it doesn't mean that it falsifies it for sure. He said, right. Well, what does it mean? 
Well, it means we might not be certain about certain details in the Gospels. It means that maybe one of them or more of them got it wrong. It doesn't mean that all of them got it wrong. Um, but even if all of them got it wrong, even if there's some legend, even if there were some embellishments and things like that in the Gospels, um, as many believe, um, even if those things are true, it doesn't negate the truth of Christianity. It just negates the factual historical truth of some of those stories. And it would really challenge some uh, views of the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Um, it doesn't mean that this is a small matter, but he said, well, Mike, what it does mean, though, it's not as big a matter as you may imagine. Uh, in other words, the amount of anxiety that you might have over it is not justified. I said, well, you're right. So that was, uh, I think that's a major insight that I might say, you know, I started off with this. And then at that point, the differences in the Gospels just didn't seem to bother me nearly as much. Mm. But I realized that they still bother a lot of conservative evangelical Christians. And that is what motivated me to launch into the study about seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that really is a fascinating way of approaching it, because I think a lot of people, when you read things on the Internet, you know, they point to these things and say, oh, well, this this seems to contradict this. And so therefore, then, you know, reach for some conclusions such as, you know, Christianity is false. And that what you've just said there undercuts that completely. Um, nevertheless, as you indicated, it might have some implication for whether one considers the New Testament specifically to be inspired as part of the Word of God, as people sometimes put it. Um, so well, what is your position there? Do you believe the Bible to be inerrant in some form? I do. Um, I think it depends on how one wants to define inerrancy. You know, uh, a lot of those over here in the States um, have a very wooden or rigid view of inerrancy. And I don't think that that view is sustainable when we come to the Bible. For example, you look at the historical books of the Old Testament, Kings, Chronicles, and Samuel. And it has been pointed out for many years by many people is there are significant numerical differences, discrepancies. So when the same accounts are being mentioned, um, I can think of one. I think it said there were 20,000 foot soldiers and 1,700 horsemen. And when you look at the parallel account, it talks about 20,000 foot soldiers and 7,000 horsemen. So was there 1,700 or 7,000 horsemen? So when you look at how some like to describe this, what's going on here, they say, well, this is obviously a copyist error. Well, I don't think that's obvious. Uh, it may be obvious to those if it's true their inflexible view of inerrancy, if we knew ahead of time that that view is correct, then it would be obvious that we're looking at a copyist error. But we don't know ahead of time, a priori, that that view is correct. And I think what we have to do is rather than presuppose a certain view, we have to look at the scriptures and develop our view from what we observe in scriptures rather than develop a view of what inerrancy means, and then try to squeeze the scriptures to fit into that view. And, and besides, you know, the folks like that would say, well, inerrancy is limited to the originals anyway. Sure, but can I ask you what a view of inerrancy might be if it is more flexible? How would you nuance that? Well, I would say you have to look at the genre, the literary category this falls into. The, mm. When you look at ancient literature, embellishment was something that almost every author, historical writer, was prone to do. Josephus did it. In fact, mm. there are numerical discrepancies 
between the way Josephus reports similar events in his autobiography, his life, and in the Jewish wars. You know, in one account, he might say hundreds, and in the other account, he might say thousands. And he does this on numerous occasions. We can see that Plutarch embellishes his numbers. So what if the chronicler embellished the numbers? He's doing nothing different than other ancient historians would have done, and it was acceptable within that genre. So I'd say you have to judge ancient writings according to uh, literary conventions of that particular genre. We, we do not say that the psalmist erred when uh, the psalmist says that God is sleeping um, because we recognize that's poetic literature. We do not think that the author of Proverbs was in error when he talks about a woman standing on top of a rooftop named Wisdom who's calling down to the simple-minded to gain wisdom. We say, okay, well, that's called wisdom literature. Uh, the same could be said about apocalyptic literature like Revelation or Jesus with his parables. If we say, well, hey, the prodigal son never lived or the parable of the Good Samaritan, that particular guy never lived. We don't say, well, that denies inerrancy. We just say, hey, no, you got to look within the genre. So when we look at the historical yeah. books of the Old Testament, uh, uh, yeah, we'd have to apply that to that. Yeah, uh, it's particularly interesting there. We're talk you're talking about uh, gospels with parables within. Of course, the gospel would be a genre, but within that you have these little genres, you say, such as parable and even apocalyptical elements. And if those are not recognized, then that's reading it quite possibly incorrectly. I mean, I have actually heard people talk about, you know, what happened to the characters in the Good Samaritan story next, you know, and I think, well, nothing. <laughs> They're part right. of the story that Jesus was actually telling and, it's, you know, it's reading it the wrong way. So, I mean, what would you say, taking Gospels as a whole, what kind of genre would you say essentially they're falling into? Let me, if I may, if you would allow me, I want to just finish a point yeah. on the inerrancy thing. Yeah, yeah. So let's just say for a moment that the rigid inerrantists, those who hold an inflexible view, let's say they're correct for a moment. Hmm. And you don't want to take a flexible view that says, okay, the genre allows for some embellishments. So let's say the inflexible view of inerrancy is correct. And we'll say we have a copyist error here and that inerrancy only applies to the originals. Then we'd have to say, you take your current Bible and you go up to one of these rigid inerrantists and you say, well, let me ask you a question then. Is the Bible that I am currently holding in my hand the inerrant word of God? And if they're being honest with you, they'd have to say no. Because by their own words, they're saying this is a scribal error. So there would be numerous errors within our Bible due to scribal errors, at least within those historical books of the Old Testament. And that being the case, Julian, we can come to one of two conclusions I'm thinking of. Number one, God was incapable of preserving an inerrant text. That would be one. Uh, I don't think a rigid inerrantist would be willing to say that, and I think God would certainly be capable of preserving an inerrant text if that's what he wanted. The second conclusion, then, is since God did not take steps to preserve an inerrant text, that an inerrant text that we would hold in our hands was not important to him. If we're talking about inerrancy in a very rigid, inflexible view, you either have to come to the conclusion that God is incapable of preserving an inerrant text or that inerrancy is not important to God. And so if inerrancy, inflexible view of inerrancy, that is, was not important to God, 
Why should it be so important to us? The flexible view of inerrancy would say either God allows the biblical authors to write according to the genre in in which that literature fits, which would allow embellishments, or a flexible view of inerrancy would say something like the Bible is without error in all that it teaches. In other words, it preserves the truth of the message without being necessarily concerned to preserve all the little precise details that's part of that message. Well, I appreciate the strength of this argument about flexible inerrancy, but let me just push you a little on it. Would it also allow room for errors to have been made? And I'm not talking about peculiarities of genre, but actual factual errors, let's say even in the matter of doctrine, in the original autographs. Well, I mean, we can't prove inerrancy, right? So this is a faith doctrine, and it leads to other questions like, how do we know the Bible is divinely inspired? Well, it claims to be. Okay, well, what does that look like? How did God do it? Mm. Okay, well, you got 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed. Okay, well, what does that process look like? Well, then you go to 2 Peter, where it says, you know, no prophecy is made according to an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Mm. Well, what does that look like? The thing is, the, the Bible never gives us the method. It, it doesn't tell us the process of divine inspiration. Could it be? Is it just as possible that God would have inspiring the biblical authors, led them, and gave them the concepts that he wanted them to communicate, the teachings of Jesus he wanted to communicate, the doctrines And if they included some factual errors, he allowed that. He was fine with that. He just wanted to make sure the other thing. You'd say, well, why would God do that? Well, you'd have to say, well, given your inflexible view of inerrancy, why would he allow any scribal errors to corrupt the text so that we wouldn't have an errant text today? See, this gets kind of complicated, and we just don't know the answers to these. So could he allow some of the doctrines to be corrupted? Uh, I would say if we hold to a doctrine of inerrancy, you would have to at least hold that when it came to the most important doctrines that have to do with salvation and living the Christian life and, and the fundamentals of the Christian faith, the essentials, well, he would not have allowed those to have been corrupted. But I don't know if we could get more specific than that. Mm. It becomes increasingly complicated the more you think about it. Uh, Yes, I agree with that. Um, I mean, one thing that I've been quite attracted to, although I'm not fully convinced by the argument, but nevertheless I've been attracted to, is uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff's idea in in his book Divine Discourse, where he talks about the idea of God appropriating texts. So, um, you know, a certain religious community, in this case, of course, the Christian community, are producing texts. And then from Wolterstorff's point of view, he's saying God is saying yes to that text. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no error in that text, but the very fact that God has, you know, by his spirit, by his his divine choice, said yes, in a, you know, with a big Y to that text, means that it is what God wants to say in general. Now, I think that's quite an attractive kind of idea, but of course it leaves the question of inerrancy out of the picture. But, you know, it's something I found interesting to think about. It's a tough thing. It really is a tough subject. And I mean, it'd be really nice if we could just wrap it up very neatly and package it and say, okay, this is really clear. But it's not. When we come to it with our presuppositions or the, the way we've been taught to believe it, you know, it can seem kind of clear. But when you really look at the texts that talk about divine inspiration and things like that, they don't necessarily say what we think they say at first look. 
Uh, it's not to say that they're saying something different from that. It's to say they aren't as specific as we think they might be. The, the bottom line, I think, Julian, for me is any view of the biblical text that we have, high views of Scripture that we have, needs to be in concert with what we observe in those texts. If it's not in concert with what we observe in those texts, then it's, it's an implausible view. Okay, well, I think perhaps we need to move on to more specific things. And I wanted to ask you a few questions about your view of these these actual Gospels that we've got here in front of us. I mean, first of all, you know, when we read the Gospels, we find you know things like the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke. And of course, many people point out that these texts themselves don't actually indicate authorship. This is a matter of church tradition. So what's your view on this authorship thing? Do you think, should we trust the tradition? Does it even matter who wrote these Gospels? Well, I would say I hold to the traditional authorship of all four of them, especially Mark, Luke, and John. I'm not so sure or confident with Matthew. It is the universal testimony of the early church, of those who wrote about it, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote these Gospels. There's no other competing traditions, okay, uh, from the early church, at least that are clear. Some would disagree with that and say, well, it's not so clear with John, but I don't happen to agree with those. Um, I think most people do agree that it is claimed that John, in the early church that John, the son of Zebedee, wrote John's Gospel. It is the universal testimony of the early church, at least in my opinion, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the Gospels. Most scholars, most New Testament scholars today agree on the traditional authorship of Mark and Luke, or I should say Mark with Luke, they agree that he was a traveling companion of Paul and got information traditions from eyewitnesses. They don't necessarily agree that it was Luke, but Luke is the most plausible candidate. Matthew and John are the two most in question. A a lot of scholars believe that if John, the son of Zebedee, was not the actual author of, of the gospel attributed to him, that he provided tradition upon which the Gospel of John is largely based. Matthew is more difficult because you have Papias in the early part of the second century saying that, and he's our first witness to the authorship of the Gospels. He says that Matthew wrote his Gospel originally in Hebrew or Aramaic, but most scholars today, even evangelicals, such as D.A. Carson and Doug Moo, in their New Testament intro will say that the kind of Greek that we see in the Gospel of Matthew is not translation Greek. Dan Wallace at Dallas Theological Seminary says the same thing, and he's an expert in a Greek language if I've ever seen one. These will say that it really looks like Matthew that we have today was originally written in Greek. So the question is, if our earliest source says that Matthew was written originally in Hebrew or Aramaic, and even most conservative evangelical New Testament scholars to say the one that we have is originally written in Greek. It wasn't originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic. What are we to do with that? And if Papias can't be trusted on that, then perhaps he shouldn't be trusted on who wrote Matthew. A number of issues or or possibilities do raise themselves, such as could Matthew have originally written a smaller gospel in Hebrew or Aramaic, and later on that small gospel maybe a sayings gospel um, that just reported the teachings of Jesus. Maybe that was translated later into Greek, that small part. And then someone who knows, maybe it was a disciple of Matthew, a friend of Matthew, or maybe someone in a church that Matthew had started, took Matthew's small gospel and combined that with a significant portion of the gospel of Mark and maybe some other sources 
and had that in Greek, and that's the Gospel of Matthew that we have today. You know, it, it's not a clear-cut issue. Sure. So that would then be the idea of a Matthew school, perhaps, being responsible for Matthew's gospel, and that's why the name Matthew was attached to it. Yeah, in fact, I think that was the view of Earl Ellis, who was a, quite a conservative New Testament scholar. Yeah, so we need to be perhaps more flexible in the way we consider such matters as authorship and perhaps other things as well. Um, another question that comes up, of course, is people say, well, you know, there's a long period of time between the, the events of Jesus' life and the writing down of these gospels. I mean, you know, back in the 19th century, it was thought that Gospels were perhaps even written as late as in the second century, but now virtually everybody accepts they were written in the first century, but we're still talking about decades between those events and the writing down, so how can we trust that? Well, that, I think that's fair, right? but I do think we're looking at it through how we look at modern things. I mean, we can write a history of the American Civil War today, and we don't have any problems with that, and yet that was, well, I guess it ended about 150 years ago. We don't have any problems with that. You know, now, of course, we're not going to have eyewitnesses today, but the Gospels weren't written 150 years afterward. At latest, we're looking at 70 years, and most would even put it, you know, before that. You know, even less than half that period of time that we're talking about between today and the American Civil War. Hmm. I, I think a, a, a better analogy would be World War II. The time between the end of World War II and today, I think we just had the 70th anniversary of that. So at the latest, that's the time between Jesus' death and the Gospel of John being written. Most don't even think the Gospel of John was written that long afterward. Hmm. So, But even today, we interview World War II vets that are still alive, and we have no problem believing their eyewitness testimony. And Gospel of Mark, 40 years, so that's like the end of the Vietnam War. And we don't, I mean, I know several Vietnam War vets, and, you know, they can tell very vividly the things that they experienced. In fact, a couple of years ago, it was interesting, I was coming out of a doctor's office, and as I was leaving the office, I saw this um, senior citizen in there, and he was wearing a baseball cap with a B-29 Super Fortress engraved in it. Well, my wife and I just love anything that's World War II. And I walked out of the office, and just my curiosity got the best, so I went right back in the office, and I walked up to the guy, and I said, Excuse me, sir, but may I ask you, did you fly on a B-29 during World War II? And he said, yes, I did, son. And I said, wow, what was that like? Do you still remember a lot of it? He says, oh, yeah, I remember a lot of it quite well. I remember where we were stationed on an island near Japan. The native women on that island had a horrible odor to them. He says, I can still remember it to this day. <laughs> So, um, you know, <laughs> peculiar. Yeah. But I, I suppose it's those things being burnt into your memory, isn't it? I mean, I can't really remember what I had for dinner at any day last week. But, you know, there are certain things that happen in your life that are so significant that you just do not forget them. So I suppose in the case of, you know, being around Jesus and certainly if indeed the resurrection took place, actually, you know, but being around that amazing event, you would remember that forever. You make a good point about it being burned into your memory, and it depends, you know, when you're talking about a significant event, even many, though not all, of the peripheral details are going to be burned into your memory. So uh, I commonly will ask folks uh, that I, I, I'm lecturing before here in the U.S., how many of you remember exactly where you were on 9-11? And almost everyone, except those who are very young, raised their hands. And I said, do you remember what the weather was like on that day. And almost everyone will say, absolutely. 
It was sunny. There was hardly a cloud in the sky. It was a beautiful day. I said, okay, you remember that, and that was more than 10 years ago. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you remember what the weather was like on 9-11 last year? (laughs) Nobody remembers. I said, why do you remember what the weather was like on that particular day? Well, because it is included being burned into the memory of a significant event. So, you know, if you saw a guy walk on water, if you saw, like you said, a guy crucified and resurrected and had appeared to you, would you remember that? Of course you would. You may not get every single detail correct, but, you know, you're going to remember the strong gist of what happened. Yeah. And this is why the analogy that people bring up about the game, I think you call it telephone in the US, we call it Chinese whispers over here. That that just fails, doesn't it? Ah. You know, because it's not the case that you have a, a message going from one person to another with it never being checked en route until it gets to being written down at the other end. Because obviously within the time frame that you're talking about there, you have eyewitnesses floating around who are going to be consulted at least some point and they're going to say that did happen or that didn't happen. It's a completely false analogy. It's always seemed to me. Yeah, it is different because, you know, in the game of Chinese Whispers, you've got children who hear an unimportant sentence one time and then they quickly and playfully pass it along to one another in an uncontrolled manner. That is entirely different than what we're talking about with the process of oral tradition, of which we've learned quite a bit during the last 50 to 60 years. I'd add one other thing, and that is... I had a kindergarten teacher come up to me after a lecture in Indiana a year ago, and she said, you know, I play the game of telephone or Chinese whispers with my kids every year in kindergarten. But once they mess it up, then I say, hey, we're going to do this again. I'm going to give you another sentence. And this time, if you do not get it perfect, then there's no recess today. And she says they get it perfect every time. (laughs) So that's because even children could do it when it was important to them. How much more when you're talking about illiterate folks that oral tradition was the primary way in which they preserved history and something as important as they thought was salvation with Jesus, of course they're going to be – they're going to take great pains and efforts to see that it's preserved accurately. And I seem to remember reading somewhere, I can't remember where it was, but somebody had done some research into the original Aramaic that was probably lay behind some of the sayings of Jesus, and they had a kind of rhythmic quality to them as if they were designed to be remembered in that oral culture. Yes, um, we can see some of that going on. And, well, we can see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, where Paul employs parallelism. So first he says, hey, I want to remind you of the gospel message that I preached. And then he says, hey, I delivered to you what I also received, which is suggestive of the imparting of oral tradition. And then this parallelism, long, short, long, short, you see, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. So it's long, short, long, short. And then right after that, he says, hey, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. And the term preach there is a different Greek term than he uses in verse 1. In verses 11, 12, and 14, the term preach is kerugma or kerygma. We get the word from that. In other words, it's official formal proclamation, public proclamation. So everything here suggests that this is oral tradition that Paul is imparting to us. And it's real interesting to see when Luke gives us the same Think Paul says, I deli- you know, what I received from the Lord, I delivered to you. And he's talking about the, the imparting of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians 11. When he gives the words of Jesus there, when Luke 
gives us the same words in his gospel, which is written between five and 35 years later after 1 Corinthians, it's almost word for word from what Paul gives. So we can see there that Luke, whether it's five years or up to 35 years, he is preserving this oral tradition intact. It's really remarkable that when you see this. Yeah. Well, it is remarkable. However, you know, somebody could say, well, okay, so I, maybe I accept that these traditions are passed on reasonably faithfully, even if I accept that. Nevertheless, when I go to the Gospels, I'm looking at material that's biased. You know, these are religious documents. These people want to get across a particular message. So how can I even begin to take that seriously as an object of historical study if it's biased literature? I'd say, except for a mathematics textbook, show me something that is not biased. In fact, many historians and philosophers of history will say there are no canons of history. In other words, there are no principles in the study of history that are agreed upon by all historians or virtually all historians. But one thing that is agreed upon by virtually all historians is that all historians are biased. There is no such thing as a neutral or unbiased historian. So it's not only the Gospels, this objection based on bias wouldn't apply just to the Gospels, it would apply to all of ancient literature, even most modern literature. All right, so that's one thing. A second thing you might say is, why should bias disqualify a piece of literature from being true? If we're going to say that, Julian, then we'd have to say an African-American historian could never write a history of slavery in the United States. A Jewish historian could never write a history of the Holocaust. And of course, as I say that, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, those might be the people who are best qualified to write on these things. If Jesus was who he claimed to be, if he actually rose from the dead, well, then the gospel authors, the earliest Christians who were either disciples or knew those who were disciples or had connections with them, they would be the most qualified to write on these things. Now, does that mean that bias has no shortcomings? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that bias does not disqualify you. And even Bart Ehrman, who likes to cast doubt on the Gospels because they're biased, you know, I challenged him in a debate with one of your friends over there, uh, Justin Brierley, uh, when I was on with uh, Bart Ehrman, and he accused me of being biased, I said, Bart, we're all biased. You're biased. And Justin said, well, how about it, Bart? Are you biased? And he said, well, of course I am. Well, I, you know, I know it's frustrating, but you can't saw off the branch on which you're sitting. Yeah, I, yeah, I take the point. It's, it's, it's no objection at all, really. It's something that just needs to be recognized and worked with, <laughs> not just to say, well, that discredits anything. That's just ridiculous. Yes, we all have bias. Interesting that you bring up that some historians say there are no criteria of history. And of course, famously, Paul Feyerabend said the same about science as well, which uh, brings me to the next question, which is to do with the miraculous. Uh, Because some people, of course, would say, well, you know, there are miracles, clear miracles happening there in the Gospels. And that's certainly got nothing to do with the, you know, the great scientific age in which we live today. I can't possibly take seriously any account that includes anything to do with the miraculous. How would you respond to that? I'd say they they need to stop listening to Richard Dawkins go out in the real world. And when you do that, you do see supernatural events. The majority of people recognize this today. The age of modernity of anti-supernatural is over. It is coming to an end. The epistemological ice age of anti-supernaturalism is over. Spring is in the air. The trees and flowers are blooming. You can walk out in the warmer weather of a worldview that includes supernatural events and be completely comfortable and dealing in reality. 
I think today, Julian, you look at things such as well-evidenced near-death experiences where a person has certifiably a flat EKG, that means no heart life, flat EEG, no brain life. And while they are clinically dead, they claim to have experience coming out of the body, having an out-of-body experience. They float to the top of the room. They're able to watch the physicians working on their body to resuscitate them. There are some accounts of people who were blind, and when they came out of their body, they had their sight, and when they were resuscitated, they were blind again, but they were able to report what color shirt the physician was wearing, uh, the colors and pattern in, in the physician's ties, stuff they could not have known, or they died and they floated to another location and heard people having, like family members, having conversations back at their home of things they couldn't have known. They knew what was eaten at dinner that evening while they were dead, the moment they were dead, and were able to come back and tell about. Anyway, there are numerous accounts like this. There's about a hundred of them that seem to suggest a supernatural element to reality. There are things such as veridical apparitions. I have a friend who saw an apparition of a dead person she hadn't seen for years. She was awakened in the middle of the night at 2.30 and had a, a very frightening experience of seeing an apparition of this girl in front of her. Within 48 hours, she saw an article in the newspaper that said this girl had died at the very moment that apparition had appeared to her and awakened her in the middle of the night. You've got radical answers to prayer, of, of which I could name many of them like a friend of mine named Lloyd Reed, who was involved in a terrible car accident in June 1987, and he was in a coma. And the 21st day of that coma was the 4th of July that year. And at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, a number of uh, members of his church were outside during a church picnic. And at 4 o'clock, they got together, they prayed for Lloyd. And miles away back at the hospital at 4 o'clock, Lloyd came out of his coma and before midnight, everyone else in that room who had been in a coma from one to six months, which was everyone else in that room, came out of that coma. So you have radical answers to prayer like that. You put all of that together. And I think that the evidence for a supernatural component to reality is so strong. You, it's no longer rational to be an atheist. You just can't deny it and still call yourself a realist. Well, thank you for that answer. Obviously, I agree with you. I do think that materialism is a bankrupt philosophy. So obviously, you would disagree with all those historic attempts that have been made to try and explain away miraculous events in the Gospels by saying, oh, there is a naturalistic explanation for them, or, or that kind of thing that says, well, you know, people dressed up the stories in miracles, because that's just the way people communicated back in those days. Presumably, you would reject all of that kind of thing. Yeah, now that's, uh, that would not be to say that people did not do that. It would not be to say that that shows that the Gospels never did. It. Okay. It would be to say that a metaphysical naturalism that rejects the reality of the supernatural within our world is false. And that should not be an objection against the miracles in the Gospels. Right. I see. So it wouldn't prove, of course, the miracles in the Gospels, but it would make room in terms of concept for the possibility that they did take place. That would not be an objection. I take that. Um, okay. So can I ask you some really specific things then about difficulties between the Gospels? Sure. Great. And there are so many things that obviously I could ask you here. So I've just grouped things together according to what I think. And so I thought, well, I'll ask you some things about the birth narratives to start with. Now, Matthew and Luke give us accounts of Jesus' birth. 
but Mark and John don't say anything about it. So don't you think that the silence of Mark and John about this calls into question the historicity, the historicity is an awkward word, isn't it? The historicity of these events. No, I, I don't. Um, certainly there are tensions or problems between the differences in Matthew and Luke's account of the infancy narratives. But the fact that Mark and John don't mention it, I, I don't think that's problematic at all. The objective of ancient biography, and I do believe the Gospels are ancient biographies, Greco-Roman biographies. The objective behind that of ancient biographies, according to Plutarch, was to illuminate the character of the main subject or the main character. You want to know what kind of a person this was. And what all four Gospels do is they talk about the divine lineage, you should say, or the divine ancestry of Jesus. He is the divine son of God. They say it differently. Um, You have Matthew and Luke do this through genealogies and tying it to, you know, divine revelation from an angel saying, you know, it's the Holy Spirit. God is going to be the actual father of this child who's going to be the Messiah. Let's go to John. John is pretty clear that Jesus is of a divine nature within the first 14 verses of John's gospel. It's very clear that Jesus came from heaven. He's God's divine son. When you look at the gospel of Mark as a whole, contrary to what many skeptical scholars are saying, that Mark has the lowest Christology, Mark has the same Christology as the others. Once you recognize the biographical character of Mark's gospel, it becomes rather easy to see. So it starts off by saying, um, hey, as Isaiah the prophet said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of our God. Who's that applying to? Well, it's not Jesus who's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It's John the Baptist that's talking about. And John the Baptist is preparing the way of the Lord. He's making straight the paths of God. Well, who's the Lord and God in this case? It's Jesus. So from the very get-go in chapter 1, it's pointing to the divinity of Jesus. You go to chapter 2, you've got Jesus who forgives the sins of a paralytic and raises, uh, uh, gives him the ability to walk. And they say, hey, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Hmm. Yep. And you got the same kind of progression through many of the chapters, chapters 3, chapters 4, chapter 9, chapter uh, 14, and, and so forth, where Jesus is seen and he does these things walks on water, coming on the clouds of heaven. These are things that the Old Testament scriptures say only God can do. And so with with this, Mark is clearly presenting Jesus as divine. So within the biographical character of Mark, he's presenting the divine nature of Jesus. So Mark and John just go at it differently and make their points from a different angle than Matthew and Luke. Well, yes, I guess that's the question in a way, when I do accept that a lot of more recent scholarship really has pointed to the fact that the Gospels as a whole have very high Christology. And so they're all doing that kind of thing. But the question then is really, why is it that Mark and John don't talk about the birth narratives? And so the question is, does that call into question the actual historicity of those birth narratives, even though they're all going to talk about the divine Christ, but maybe those particular stories about Jesus' birth were made up? Uh, No, I don't think so at all. Most Greco-Roman biographies just talk about the lineage, you know, the family ancestry of the main character, 
and give very little of their childhood. And then, boom, they jump right into the launching, the inauguration of their adult life and what made them famous. And this is what we have in the Gospels. So a lot of times people may ask, well, why don't any of the Gospels talk about Jesus' childhood? Or, or that why is it just barely mentioned? Because that's, that's part and parcel of Greco-Roman biography. Right, so that'd be quite normal for them to do it that way. Okay, is, this is Richard Burridge's uh, concept, is it, that uh, of the Greco-Roman biography? It is. Um, it was first proposed by Charles Talbert, David Awney, uh, Burridge over there on your side of the pond uh, had set out to disprove uh, those who were claiming the Gospels were Greco-Roman biography. Oh, wow. And his book that resulted, What Are the Gospels?, came to be a watershed book that was most responsible, more than anything else, in turning the tide of the opinion of New Testament scholars to now a significant majority grant that the Gospels belong to the genre of Greco-Roman biography. Right. That is fascinating. Um, now, you actually brought up the question about the genealogies, something I wanted to ask you. Now, I mean, Matthew and Luke have very different genealogies for Jesus. When we look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 to 17, and Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, um, the genealogies are really quite similar from Abraham up to David. But then when we go from David to Jesus, it starts to go awry. It seems really different. So why is that? We don't know exactly why, but we can see something that Matthew is doing, and it's major. So whatever reasons we're going to give for the differences in the genealogies would certainly be largely the result of what scholars called a literary device called gometria, in which Hebrew letters were assigned numerical values. So when you read Matthew's genealogy, you find that in verse 17 of chapter 1, Matthew sums it up and he says, so the number of generations from Abraham to David, I think it is, are 17. And the number of generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 17. And the number of generations from the deportation to Jesus, 17. In all, we have 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. And when you look at that, you, you notice that Matthew just seems to want to package this very neatly for some reason in three sets of 17 or for a total of 42 generations. And if you can look I, at... Can I just just check you? Is it um, 17 or is it 14? I'm just looking here. Oh, That's yeah, 14. Yeah, 14. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah three no sets problem. of 14. So what does that come to? Um, 42 generations. So, yeah, thanks for the correction. It's verse 17. <laughs> That's what was getting me confused. Uh -huh, yeah, so, um, sure, sure. Yeah. So you got three sets of 14 or 42 generations. And he says, in all, we have 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. So when you go back to Chronicles, you find that there are some more generations that Matthew omitted. So why is it that he wanted to package this in three sets of 14? And then you look, if we apply Gematria, you know, most scholars are thinking that Matthew is really focusing on Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David. So, Gematria, you're assigning numerical values to letters. Well, when you look at the word David, you've got uh, the D is given a value of four. So, you've got two Ds, and then the middle consonant or, or letter is given six. So, you add that together and you get 14. So, David has a numerical value of 14. So could it be here that Matthew is saying Jesus is the son of David and he's saying this three times for emphasis? 
That's certainly very interesting. That's certainly a possibility, isn't it? But as you say, even if that's not true, he's clearly doing something there by not having everybody mentioned, but having these three sets of 14. Something's going on there. So that, that, yes, indeed, that may be leading us in the right direction, that even if we don't have the final answer. Yeah, this, is, this would be an instance where Matthew is redacting, he's editing in order to make a theological point. Right. Now, that doesn't change things that Jesus came from a lineage. It doesn't mean that he's making up some of these generations, but it does mean that he is packaging them in such a way to make his theological point that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. Great. Um, I want to ask you one that's a real thorn. <laughs> and this is about, of course, Quirinius. So you know what's coming up. But let me spell it out. There's this very, very famous yeah. problem in trying to match up really Matthew's timing for Jesus' birth with that of Luke. And uh, according to Matthew, Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great. So this is Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. According to Luke, Jesus was born during the first census in Israel while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So this is Luke chapter 2, verse 2. But we know that Herod the Great died around 4 BC, and this census, it seems, took place in 6 or 7 AD. So we've got over a 10-year gap here. So how can we reconcile these two? Well, um, let me say, first of all, that when I talk about differences in the Gospels, I, my research over the last seven years has not been, let's try to reconcile and match up every detail, okay? Sure. What I've been studying are compositional devices that we find in antiquity and that we're taught and seeing if the Gospel authors use these, if that accounts for the differences. So oh, fair enough. this is beyond my, my research, but I would say this. Yeah, Josephus would disagree with Luke on this, but who's to say that Josephus was correct? So Josephus could have been inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Another option is that Luke was inaccurate on that. Although we can show Luke to be a very good historian on points where we can check him out. So I don't think we should assume that he's mistaken here. Do we know that Josephus was a good historian? He was a pretty good historian, but he was not perfect. And we know that he took the same kind of flexibilities that Plutarch and other ancient historians Took. I mean, he adapted, he omitted, he added, he elaborated, embellished. He did all these kinds of things that other ancient historians did and were allowed to do as historians. So we have to judge ancient authors by the literary conventions of their day rather than imparting our idea of modern precision upon them. So Josephus, by ancient standards, was a pretty decent historian, although not one of the best. But Josephus could have got it wrong. Luke could have got it wrong. Um, there are things that we don't know. I mean, Quirinius was, uh, Luke says, proconsul at that time. He could have been. We don't know if he was or was not. The Roman records that we have are not complete. The most complete account that we have written down in modern scholarship is abbreviated MRR, Magistrates of the Roman Republic. And you can get PDFs of volume two. And it gives, I, I forgot, you know, a couple hundred years BC all the way down to, you know, like the end of the Roman Republic. And it gives all the dictators, all the consuls, all the proconsuls, all the tribunes, all the magistrates uh, of those particular years. And it's not complete. It's not completely accurate. So we don't know if Quinius was proconsul in that time. He may have been, he may not have been. You know, one of the objections is why isn't the census mentioned anywhere else? Well, historians are select. You know, you've got Luke, who mentions in Acts chapter 18, I think it's verse 2, he mentions how Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. 
Well, Suetonius mentions that in chapter 6 of his life of Claudius, and it's only two sentences that he mentions it. Well, if it hadn't been for those two sentences in Suetonius and the one or two sentences in Acts chapter 18, we wouldn't even know about such an event as Claudius expelling the Jews from Rome. Nobody else mentions it. Josephus doesn't mention it. And yet he was alive at the time, and he's writing a history of the Jewish people. Right. So um, we don't know why they were select. Yeah. No. So the, the assumption with, with a lot of these objections is that we know a lot more than we do, in fact, know from what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. I've got a couple of things that I wanted to ask you pretty much at random. I mean, I just came across these, and this is one uh, where in Mark's Gospel, Jesus walks along with the disciples, and he curses a fig tree one day. And then it's the next day that he and the disciples go past that fig tree again and find it withered. In Matthew's gospel, he curses it and it withers immediately. So, I mean, what can you do about this? It says there's a gap in one gospel, another gospel, it says it was straight away. That surely is a contradiction, yeah? Uh, that's that's easy. Uh, that is uh, a literary device that Matthew is using, uh, we would call compression. Plutarch uses it often. Other ancient authors use it often. And it's just simply Matthew is abbreviating the account and he is compressing it and he makes it, he narrates it as though it happens on the same day, but it did not. Um, Matthew compresses his accounts elsewhere, like the raising of Jairus's daughter from the dead. Luke compresses his account of Jesus' resurrection and his post-resurrection appearances. He puts everything, Easter, all the appearances and the ascension in Jerusalem, and it all occurs on Easter. He compresses it. Um, And we know that he compresses it because in his sequel, the book of Acts, chapter 1, he says it occurred over a period of 40 days. So he's obviously compressing it, and that's what Matthew's doing here with the fig tree. Okay, and you say there are plenty of examples from antiquity of people doing the same kind of thing outside of the biblical writings. Oh, yeah. All right, okay. Oh, let me throw another one at you then. So this is Peter walking on water in Matthew's account. So, okay, in the uh, the parallels in, in Mark and John, they don't have this extra element. Jesus walks on the water, but it's only in Matthew that the invitation is there for Peter to walk, and then, of course, he starts to sink, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, and I've heard it explained that, you know, Matthew is sort of creating something here for his um, community to benefit from, um, you know, as a sort of message about faith or something. So he's he's adding this to the story. Do you buy that kind of explanation? Well, if I look at it purely historically, you know, I'd have to say that is a possibility that Matthew invents the story. Okay. Um, I can't prove that he did not. I can't prove that he did. To be honest with you, I would expect this to appear in Mark's gospel rather than Matthew's because if the early church tradition is correct and there's no reason to doubt it, Mark got his information from Peter. Perhaps Mark omitted the story because... He thought it cast a negative light on Peter, and he was already having Jesus call Peter Satan (laughs) and, you know, and having Peter deny Jesus, and he didn't want to put this further in there. I don't know. Uh, We don't know why they omitted things, but, you know, the same thing could be said in Plutarch and other ancient authors. Why is it they don't mention certain things? I mean, you know, it's interesting to note, and this is even more of a surprise, Josephus does not mention his capture by the Romans in his autobiography. That's huge. What is the assumption everybody knows anyway? (laughs) Yeah, you would think he would mention that in his autobiography. Do you know that neither Thucydides nor Herodotus nor any of their contemporaries whose writings have survived mention Rome or the Romans (laughs) who were around at that time? Why don't they do that? We don't know. 
So um, why doesn't Mark and Luke mention Peter's walking on water? Don't know. They're selecting the things that they put. You know, even in the resurrection appearances, Luke mentions the appearance to the Emmaus disciples that no one else mentions. You know, Matthew mentions the appearance in Galilee to the group as a whole. The others don't necessarily do that. It's implied in Mark. You know, John narrates some appearances that the others don't. It could be that they each narrated appearances that the others weren't, and they wanted to include those. I don't know why why the others don't mention the walking on water. Does that mean Matthew made it up or invented it? No. Does it mean he didn't? No. Right. But it does mean that we have to be very careful with the argument from silence. It's not nearly as strong as it often is portrayed to be. Precisely. Okay, a few more then. The Passion Narratives, I've got a few things here. So uh, Jesus carried his own cross to the place of execution. That's John's Gospel says that he carried his own cross, but the synoptics say that this guy, Simon of Cyrene, was forced to carry the cross for Jesus. So we've got a contradiction here. I think what John is doing, as he does elsewhere, and the other Gospel authors do it on different times, is they are simplifying the account. The way I like to explain this is to say, those of us who are married clearly understand that there's the guy version of a story and there's the girl version of the story. (laughs) Girls like details, lots of details. They want to know what happened, when it happened, how it happened, why it happened, who was there, what they were wearing, what they were saying, what they were thinking and how they were feeling. And then they want to know how you feel about it after you now know the story. The guy version of the story, bullet points, Keep it short. Get to the main point. Now, of course, I'm stereotyping, but we like bullet points. Just get to the bottom line. If you need to abbreviate and alter details some, go for it. So it could be that, you know, John looks at this with the Simon of Cyrene. Mark had reason to mention it because he mentions, hey, Alexander and Rufus, Simon's sons, which seems to suggest that Mark's audience knew Alexander and Rufus, and so they could verify that account. When you come to John, maybe they didn't know Simon or his sons, and you think, you know, this is an insignificant detail. There's really no theological significance to this. There's no fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, And so John just simplifies the account and has Jesus carrying his cross all the way. Okay, yeah, I think that's very plausible. Um, okay, what about this one? This is harder, I think, anyway. The Gospels are unclear as to which day Jesus was crucified. Can you help us with that? Yeah, that's, that's difficult, uh, because John narrates the crucifixion and death of Jesus to occur prior to the Passover meal, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke narrate his crucifixion occurring after the Passover meal. So Matthew is the clearest saying that the Last Supper was the Passover meal, and Mark and Luke are certainly in alignment with that. In John's Gospel, Jesus celebrates the Last Supper. It's almost certainly the same—well, it is the same, certainly the last meal that is narrated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because Judas portrays Jesus, is said to portray Jesus here. He gets up from the table, a lot of the same things. Jesus predicts his betrayal and all that. But in chapter 13 of John, it starts off that— the day of preparation was approaching, and so Jesus you know, told them to get a place. This is not a Passover meal that is being celebrated uh, in John as John portrays it. And then, I think it's chapter 18, the Jewish leaders deliver Jesus to Pilate. They don't follow him in so that they might not be defiled and could eat the Passover that evening. So, um, again, John portrays the Passover meal to be celebrated after Jesus' death, Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it before Jesus' death, Mark says Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. 
John places it around noon. So what's going on here? I follow Craig Keener on this, and I've looked at a number of different explanations. So, you know, I've looked at David Instone Brewer, what he says about this. I think he's got a plausible explanation, but I think Keener has the one that I think is most correct. And Keener suggests that when you look at the Mishnah, he recognizes it's, you know, probably second century tradition. But he says when in the Mishnah, when it says that when the Passover fell on a Sabbath, then the burnt offerings, which are typically offered on the Sabbath, are pushed back two hours to accommodate the slaughtering of the Passover lambs. The burnt offerings are typically offered around 2.30 in the afternoon. You push that back about two hours, and what do you have? Around 12.30 or around noontime. So what Keener suggests is that John alters the day and the time of Jesus' crucifixion in order to make theological points to say that Jesus is the burnt offering for our sins and he's our Passover lamb. Theological doctrines that Paul, decades before John wrote, said the same thing. And Plutarch and others do the same thing. They displace events from their original location or time and they transplant them elsewhere in order to make certain theological or political or philosophical points. And John does this elsewhere. So it shouldn't surprise us that he does that here. Okay, so we're back to this question of genre again. So if this was an acceptable thing to do within that genre, really is out of place for us to come along and say, hey, that's just a contradiction because we're being unsophisticated in our approach to the text. Now, you say John does it elsewhere. Would you say this also accounts for the fact that he puts the turning of the tables in the temple courts towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, whereas the others put it towards the end? Yes. Now, that doesn't prove that... Jesus didn't do it on two occasions, okay, because perhaps he, he did. But it would certainly be a very plausible explanation for why John has it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It may be to make a theological point about Jesus' preaching, you know, because there he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it. And he's referring to his body, John says. So it could be to make the theological point that Jesus is there to challenge the Jewish leadership and he does become the temple. He inaugurates a new covenant. And John does it elsewhere. So, for example, the the woman anointing Jesus for his burial, this is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and John. It's possibly mentioned in Luke, but the story in Luke, although it has a number of similarities, it's so different, it could be referring to another occasion. I think it, it, it may be. It, it probably is. But So, certainly Matthew, Mark, and John. Matthew and Mark say that the woman anointed Jesus two days before Passover, whereas John places it six days prior to Passover. This seems to be the same account because the woman does the same thing. The perfume is worth the same amount. Um, The people who are present give the same objection, and Jesus' response is the same. So to think that it happened six days and then happened again two days, you know, is kind of implausible. It's a strain. Yes. People account for this differently. Uh, Daryl Bach told me that, and he's an evangelical scholar over here, he says he thinks that, you know, Mark adjusted it and changed the day to two days because Jesus says this is done in preparation for my burial. Mark changes it, Matthew follows him um, because Mark wants to make it closer to the passion. I think what's going on here, when I read Lucian of Samosata, who wrote in the middle of the second century, and he wrote a book called how to Write History. <laughs> it's one of the few books on how to write history that has survived from antiquity. 
And in there, he talks about that a narrative, when you're writing a history or biography, the narrative should not be comprised of disjointed stories. Uh But the stories are to be linked together and with overlapping material when possible, like links of a chain. So think about this for a moment. You go to John's Gospel and what do you have? I think it's chapter 11 where you've got uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead and you've got Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, uh, Lazarus' sisters in that narrative. And the very next chapter, it transitions to this woman anointing Jesus, who is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. So could it be that John's looking at this and saying, hmm, you know, I just told the story of Lazarus raising from the dead. And you know what? I've got another story. I've mentioned Mary. I've got another story about her. So why don't I just tell it here? And so he links the two stories together in this narrative. Mary is the overlapping material. And in order to do that, he displaces it from its original context of two days before Passover, and he transplants it six days before Passover, because this all occurs before Palm Sunday. Well, that's, that certainly sounds very plausible. So the, the principle of overlapping is more important than just sticking to the actual chronological order. Exactly. You're putting it together in an artistic manner. We probably don't have time to talk about this, but and we can keep going on, I'm saying, but uh, this gets a little more in-depth, but we can see that there are numerous places in the Gospels, when you compare the chronology, there's different kinds of chronologies. That w- there's what we could call a, a specific or firm chronology, where they actually make statements like two days or six days before Passover, or on the following day, or they went from there and went here, where it's a firm chronology. There are other times when there's like an inferred or implied chronology that seems to be suggestive, intimated, that this is the way things happen chronologically, but it's not required. The language is vague enough that it's not required. And then you might have floating chronology where it just said, on another occasion, this occurred. And so they're just put together for some reason, but they're not necessarily linked or tied together. Well, there are numerous occasions where you have this intimated or even firm chronology that goes on that are contradictory within the Gospels. And so I think what the gospel authors are doing here, if they displace the events, which they do, we can show they do on numerous occasions, just like other ancient historians and biographers did. And then in order to link these together in a narrative, they insert what we might refer to as synthetic or or artificial chronological links in order to link these narratives together so that they aren't disjointed. So the stories actually happen. But the actual stated chronology, even if it's a firm or specified chronology, may not necessarily be the way that they were done. But they put that in there artificially or synthetically in order to link them together to make a good narrative. That is a fascinating explanation there. It's very appealing. And we do see other ancient authors doing this. So it's plausibility. Um, this is within yes. the genre of, mm. of Greco-Roman biography. It's, it's, so they're following the literary rules of their day. Yes, absolutely. So you're not just picking out explanations out of thin air. You're you're finding parallels with other writing which uh, substantiate what you're saying. I, I appreciate that, absolutely. Okay, well, let me just ask you one more about this kind of thing here, the passion narrative area. Um, we have criminals crucified with Jesus. Mark says that these criminals heaped insults upon Jesus. But Luke has one of the criminals say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds, today you will be with me in paradise. So it looks like in one picture we have here of abuse, 
worse than the other picture we have here of one person coming to faith in Christ. There's a couple of explanations that present themselves to us. One, you could say that Luke invented the story. I'm not saying what I believe. I'm just saying there's various possibilities that we should be open to as historians as we look at these. Remember, I'm not presupposing inerrancy or divine inspiration or any of that or any particular view. But you could say that Luke invented it because Jesus did teach that you could be forgiven no matter what you had done. Just like, he, you know, in the parable of the prodigal son, you know, you can come back even after you've ruined things on your own life. Um, maybe Luke is illustrating that in a way to say that even if you are a criminal, you could at the end of your life repent and receive forgiveness. And he illustrates this teaching that Jesus actually gave during his lifetime. So he's not inventing a teaching. He's just illustrating it through this. All right. I don't believe that that's what happened. I don't see this kind of liberty. I don't see Luke doing this throughout his gospel. So I don't think that's what's going on. It's a live option. It's a live option. Another option would be the repentance of the robber wasn't important for Mark to illustrate. And so he just simplifies his account and doesn't mention it. Hmm. Another option, they both occurred. When they were all put up on the cross, both of the thieves, robbers, rejected Jesus and heaped insults on him. And then later on, the one thief repented. Maybe he was impressed by the way he saw Jesus responding to those who were executing him. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing or, you know, things like that. Yeah, that's again, I find that very plausible. I mean, the whole idea yeah. of trying to harmonize gospel accounts has come into disrepute, really, hasn't it? It's very unfashionable to do that. But I don't see why one shouldn't try to do that. Do you think that part of the reason for that is because it's been done so badly in the past? I mean, I I think of one example that I do think is quite bad with Harold Linzel in the Battle for the Bible, trying to deal with the differences between the accounts of Peter's denial of Jesus and uh, you know, ending up with six denials of Jesus, so, yeah. you know, um, in, instead of three, which is clearly indicated. Do you you think it's that kind of thing that's led to this dismissive attitude towards trying to harmonize them? I do. Uh, I do think that that is. I I think these harmonization efforts, I think they are legitimate. In some cases, you can do it. In some cases, you shouldn't do it. In case like Linzel, he, I think, was guilty of, as many are, in order to preserve their inflexible wooden view of the text and how it must read, because that's the way they think God should have inspired it and had it written, they end up subjecting the biblical text to a sort of hermeneutical waterboarding until they tell them what they want to hear. And I think that that does violence to the text. In many of these cases, the texts aren't meant to be harmonized if these compositional devices that ancient historians and biographers would employ, like compression, displacement, transferal, Uh, spotlighting, all these kinds of things, Um, if these are what's going on, you shouldn't try to harmonize the accounts. So you need to take it on a case-by-case basis, and there's nothing wrong with harmonization if it is indeed a legitimate thing to do at that particular point. Correct. Can I um, ask you about some of the sort of thorny ones about the resurrection narratives, because these are the things that people often point to and say, you know, well, there are so many difficulties with the resurrection that it's difficult to take it seriously at all. Now, I don't, obviously, I don't agree with that, but here are the, some of the things that they bring up. Um, I mean, why is it that, you know, Mark doesn't even include an account of the resurrection sightings at the end of his gospel? And that's generally accepted to be the earliest gospel. Does that not cast doubt on the resurrection accounts in the other gospels? No, because before Mark was ever written, we've got Paul 
and he's mentioning the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, you know, we can trace the apostolic teaching of the resurrection back to the apostles just by using Paul, and we can do it with yeah. a very high degree of certainty. So that's one thing. Another thing is Mark does mention the empty tomb. He just doesn't mention the appearances if Mark uh, does. And as most scholars, including myself, agree that Mark ends at chapter 16, verse 8, that Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 were later added. These are those verses that talk about picking up poisonous snakes and drinking poison and things like that. Most scholars do agree that these were later added. So why would Mark not narrate the appearances Did Mark know about the appearances? Well, I think Mark would have certainly known about the appearances because on multiple occasions, he has Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. And even in chapter 14, verse 28, he has Jesus saying, look, after I've been raised from the dead, I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see me. And then in chapter 16, verse 7, the angel tells the women, go and tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus has gone ahead of you into Galilee. You go up there and see him. You'll see him there just as he told you. So Mark seems to know about the appearance. And again, the appearances were mentioned prior to Mark even being written, and it was being taught by the apostles. So the question is, why doesn't Mark narrate an appearance if we believe, as most scholars, that verses 9 through 20, which talk about the appearances, were actually a later Christian interpolation from the 2nd or 3rd century? Well, there's about as many opinions on why Mark did this as there are New Testament scholars who comment on it very seriously. Okay, all right. What's your opinion then? (laughs) Well, Mark either intended to end his gospel here for any number of reasons that are unknown to us and we can only speculate, or as what I would hold with a number of significant, though a minority of New Testament scholars, is that Mark's ending has either been lost or he was unable to complete it. For example, he died, or for whatever reason. I don't know which to choose between those. But do you think it's plausible that Mark ended it that way as a kind of question mark, although he affirmed the resurrection, nevertheless, you know, kind of dramatic note to say, oh, what comes next? Do you think that's plausible? Yeah, I mean, numerous scholars have suggested, well, he left it out because Mark was, as a number of scholars believe, this is the written text of what was to be an oral performance. And in that case, you end like that, and people say, well, what now? And that silence is to get them reflecting because they already know about the appearances. And so, ah, I guess we're the witnesses. We're to go out and tell about the resurrection. You know, I don't know. I, I think some of these are so speculative. We just don't know. I don't really find any of the reasons I've heard to be compelling. So that's why I'm more inclined to believe that either Mark's ending has been lost. Maybe it's preserved by Matthew. Or maybe it's preserved by Luke. Or Mark was unable to complete it. There is just no reports in the early church. They struggled with why Mark ended the gospel so abruptly, but nobody says anything about it. Okay, Matthew and Mark give us one angel in the empty tomb. Luke and John give us two angels. Right, so how many angels were there? My guess would be there were two, and that Matthew or Mark is doing a literary device 
it's the most common liter- literary device I found in Plutarch, and I, I call it literary spotlighting. It's kind of like this. You're at a theatrical performance, and there are multiple characters on stage, and all of a sudden the lights go off and a spotlight shines on a single person. You know others are present, but the spotlight is on that particular person because they're the most important one. Uh, there's emphasis on that person for one reason or another. Again, Plutarch does this tons of occasions. It, it, again, it's the most common literary device I find in Plutarch. So it could very well be the case that the reason we have one angel in Mark is because Mark is shining his literary spotlight on the angel who's doing the talking, who's doing the announcing that Jesus has been raised. Uh, And Matthew is following Mark on that. Luke and John have two. We find literary spotlighting on two more occasions throughout the resurrection narratives. Uh-huh. I was just thinking, actually, of asking you, do you think the same thing is going on with Mary Magdalene in John's Gospel, who, who gets the soul mentioned at the empty tomb? But you, we've got other characters, haven't we, in the Synoptic Gospels? But John just, is he just highlighting that? Yes, I, I'm certain that John is shining his literary spotlight on Mary because she's the major woman. That's John chapter 20, verse 1, where it's Mary Magdalene that goes to the tomb and finds it empty. But notice what happens. She runs back in verse 2, and she tells Peter and the beloved disciple that they have taken the Lord, and we don't know where they laid him. Who's we? Kind of interesting. And then you look at John's gospel, and what does it say? Peter and the beloved disciple ran to the empty tomb. They found it just as Mary had said, and they went home. Whereas in Luke's gospel, when the women came back and reported the tomb was empty, it said Peter got up and ran to the tomb, found it empty, as the women had said, and then he went home. You say, well, which is it? Is it just Peter, or is it Peter and the beloved disciple, as John says? Well, then read 12 verses later in the gospel of Luke, in chapter 24, where the Emmaus disciples are talking with Jesus. It says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus says, why the long faces, guys? And they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on in the last couple of days? And Jesus says, tell me. And they say, well, you know, there's this Jesus. We, he's a prophet. We thought he's the Messiah. But they crucified him on Friday. Um, and then some of our, our, our women went to the tomb this morning and said they saw angels who had said he'd been raised from the dead. The tomb was empty. And then some of our own went to the tomb and found it as the women had said. Well, wait a minute, Luke, just 12 verses later, you said just Peter. I think Luke would say, I didn't say just Peter. I only mentioned Peter because he's the lead disciple. He's the most important one here. But I obviously know of others because 12 verses later, I said some of our own plurality there. So again, I could show this in Plutarch. I could show this in Josephus. Um, It's common throughout ancient uh, literature, ancient historiography and biography. I'm certain that this is what's going on in the Gospels. Even though we can't get into a time machine, go back and verify it, I think it's the most plausible explanation for why we find one versus two angels, Mary versus multiple women, and Peter versus Peter and the beloved disciple running to the empty tomb. Well, thank you very much indeed for those insights. I think that's fantastic. Um, Have you a little bit of time just to ask a couple of questions about John's Gospel? Sure. I know this isn't, doesn't centre in your research, but um, John's Gospel is one of the things that causes a, a headache for people. Um, I mean, often it's looked upon as being just a, a theological book and not concerned with history. But I do understand that, although that's been fashionable to look at it that way for many years, that, that recent scholarship is challenging that. And there's much more, it's said now, there's much more history in John than perhaps a lot of people thought. Um, anyway, nevertheless, why is it that Jesus himself does sound so different in John's Gospel from the Synoptic Gospels? 
Wow. What a great question. Well, here's my thought on it. And I have to admit, I am not a Johannine scholar. So um, this is just my thoughts after reading Aladdin Plutarch, after reading John's Gospel a dozen times in Greek, after reading First John a dozen times in Greek. And what's really interesting, as I read First John a dozen times, and then I turned to John's Gospel, and I'm sorry, I've, I've only read it eight times in Greek, John's Gospel. So, okay. not a dozen. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> uh, but I have read First yeah. John a dozen times. So, after I read that a dozen times and I went to John's Gospel, I was just amazed at how similar Jesus in John's Gospel sounds to John in First John. The grammar and vocabulary, the style is so similar that in my mind, even though scholars dispute this, when I read these in Greek uh, multiple times, in my mind, uh, it seems like a slam dunk that whoever wrote John also wrote First John. So I look at that and say, okay, well, did Jesus speak in such a way? And you know how it is with married couples. You kind of morph in the way you say things and you, know, you become more like one in your mannerisms and stuff the longer you're married. Could it be that John, he was a beloved disciple, was very close to Jesus and so – he tried to sound like Jesus, and he developed a style that was like Jesus. The other option is that John paraphrased Jesus in his own words. That's what I'm inclined to think. I think that if we want to know more like what Jesus sounded like and the actual words of Jesus, you have to go to the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you want to get the voice of Jesus, the message John still preserves that just like the synoptics do. Sometimes he preserves it more clearly than the synoptics do, but he certainly preserves the voice of Jesus, the same message. So he's given us the gist of what Jesus said. Is this what uh, theologians talk about? I think I've got the Latin right here. Is it the ipsissima verba is the actual words, but the ipsissima vox is the voice, the message. Is that right? Precisely. So I think that's why a lot of the difference there, yeah. So if I take something like where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, do you think it's plausible? I mean, one time Bishop of Durham, David Jenkins over here said that, I mean, he was, I think he puts it quite in an extreme way, but it's, it's an interesting thought where he says something like, I don't think Jesus ever said, I am the way and the truth and the life. But I think that John was absolutely right to say it of him. Now that could be taken as a dreadful compromising thing to say, but what he's saying is, could it be John is in fact compressing the teaching of Jesus into these highly symbolic sayings, and the voice of Jesus is preserved in that? I think that's entirely plausible. I mean, we can't prove anything one way or the other. And according to the rules of ancient biography, you could have done that. Now, you're not allowed in ancient biography hmm. to invent speeches whole cloth. You're not supposed to, okay? Right. According to you know people like Thucydides and Polybius and Lucian, when you reproduce speeches, um, you are to do your best in reproducing them as accurately as possible according to what you may have heard and recall and what other eyewitnesses may have heard and recall. You put that together and you reconstruct that speech and you are allowed to reconstruct it in such a way to show off your skill as an orator, okay? Because there's no way you're going to be able to do it word right. for word. Um, you're going to get concepts in there. You're going to get the gist of things. You may combine what that person said on different occasions, okay? Like most even New Testament scholars, uh, evangelical scholars believe Matthew did in his Sermon on the Mount. You know, but you're not allowed to invent something that that person would not have said. No, no. 
so so just i'm just speculating here so it's possible that jesus might have said on one occasion things like you know i am the way follow me and on other occasions you know if you want to know the truth you follow me because i'm the truth and if you want to know the resurrection and the life follow me because i am the life and, and then it all gets compressed into one statement there that is plausible yes and he just paraphrases it you know what jesus said so i mean jesus made similar statements in the synoptics i think of sure. matthew eleven twenty seven, where jesus says um no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to whomever the Son chooses to reveal him. Yeah. Um, so it's obvious there from what Jesus says, he is the only way that you're going to know God. Yeah. That's very much like John's Gospel, actually, isn't it, that saying? Well, it, it very much is, especially when you look at the verses that come immediately after that. They're so Johannine in their flavor that you have scholars refer to it as the Johannine thunderbolt, or as Ben Witherington calls it, he gives it more emphasis and says that the Johannine meteorite, it's so strong, it sounds like John, so, uh, but of course it's written before John. So it could very well be the case that John is taking actual teaching of Jesus here, that he's the only way, and paraphrasing it in his own words to get that, the gist, the voice, the mm. ipsissima vox, as you said. Mm. Okay, why is it that we don't get mention of the raising of Lazarus? Well, this is a, an amazing miracle that takes place in John's Gospel. This man has been dead for days, and he's brought back to life by Jesus. Yet Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't say anything about it. Yeah. Well, why is it that Ulysses S. Grant doesn't mention the Emancipation Proclamation? Why is it that Josephus mm. doesn't mention his capture by the Romans in his autobiography? You know, one of the biggest well, events of his entire life. Um, we just don't know those things. But you could say the same thing. Why doesn't John mention the parables and exorcisms of Jesus? Mm. These were huge. Like every historian of Jesus will say, one thing we can know from the evidence is that Jesus taught in parables. Jesus exercised demons. So why aren't these mentioned in John's gospel? Yeah. He's got different emphases that he wants to make. Why is it that Luke is the only one who mentions um, the raising of the widow's son? Why doesn't John mention the raising of Jairus' daughter? Well, John, knowing that others, the other, the synoptics were around, you know, he said at the end of his gospel in, in chapters 20 and 21, he, he says, you know, there are many other things Jesus did, right? And so if he knew the story of Jair, the raising of Jairus' daughter, the widow's son had already been said, maybe he wants to include some stories like the raising of Lazarus that the synoptics chose not to include because they were limited. I mean, let's face it, ancient biographies, uh, according to what scholars are saying, and Richard Burridge has the you know, most authoritative and specific work on this. The typical biography was somewhere between ten and 25,000 words. The max would be in about 25,000 words because that's about what you could get on a scroll. And so they're going to be select. And John, if he's writing after the synoptics, he wants to include some events that the synoptics didn't include. That would make perfect sense of why he includes certain things the synoptics don't. Would you say this is the same kind of thing then that, you know, we have the farewell discourse, the massive teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples just before his death, and yet... The synoptics don't say anything about that. So would you say that, well, they're just omitting that because that's not part of what they want to include in their gospel? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do you think that's... They're just being select, just like every other historian must select. Hmm. But do you think that perhaps we're stretching that explanation considering just how different 
John is from the other Gospels, because I've I've just noted down a, a few of the things which are in John's Gospel, not in the Synoptic. So we have the conversation with Nicodemus, we have Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman, we have Jesus teaching about the bread of life, we've got the healing of the man born blind, and we could go on and on and on. Do you think we're going so far as to stretch this explanation a little bit too far? I don't. And listen, I'm I'm open to that kind of stuff. You know, it's like I've said, I, I can't prove some things. I, I can't prove that some of this isn't invented by the gospel authors. You know, as a historian, I got to be open to various um, explanations. And, and my view is you've got to come to the scriptures and you develop your view of scripture based on what we observe in scriptures rather than squeezing the gospels to fit your preconceived view of it. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be open to various things. But I really just don't see any real problem with that. I mean, yeah, Jesus talks about a man born blind in John's gospel that isn't mentioned in the rest. But the synoptics talk about people who were born blind, where he heals them that aren't mentioned in the gospel of John. Similar kind of miracle, similar kind of raising of the dead, similar kind of healing blind people, but he uses different instances. He narrates different post-resurrection appearances and things like that. That said... I do think that John exercises greater flexibility in his life of Jesus, in his gospel, in the way he reports what happens than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. He paraphrases things much more loosely. He probably conflates certain events and teachings, something that Plutarch did, something that Josephus did, something that other ancient um, historians and biographers did. But he does it more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Do I understand all of that he does? No. I'd probably side with uh, another scholar on your side of the pond, N.T. Wright, who once said the gospel of John for him is much like his wife. He loves her, but doesn't always understand her. (laughs) That's a very good way of putting it. Indeed. And I have to say that I do find John's gospel absolutely compelling, and I learn an awful lot from it. But yes, it is perplexing at times but um, maybe that's part of the way faith should be actually that we shouldn't have all the answers immediately in front of us but we have to struggle with things a little bit and i do think you've given us loads of ways in which to help through that struggle actually it's been a fascinating conversation before we close is there anything major in what you've learned over these uh, years looking at this kind of thing that you think we've not talked about in this conversation that you think we ought to include no, I, I think I tried to get, you know, express my main point at the beginning that would say we've got to put these gospel differences into perspective. You know, it's the resurrection that confirms the truth of Christianity. It's not biblical inerrancy or anything like that. Another point that I, you know, I wanted to make is we should develop our view of the scriptures based on what we observe in the scriptures. This is something that the late and great New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce counseled students of the Bible to do. And then I think harmonization efforts are legitimate at times, but I think in in a lot of cases, the Gospels aren't meant to be harmonized, that the reason we see the overwhelming, more than 90% of the differences we see in the Gospels, well over 90%, is because they were using the compositional devices that are taught in the compositional textbooks like from Theon, Hermogenes, Quintilian, John of Sardis, and and others, Aphonius, and that can be inferred through looking at what Plutarch did in telling the same story on multiple occasions in his different biographies, what Josephus did when he is reporting the same story in 
his autobiography, as well as the Jewish wars, when we see how Josephus, the kind of flexibilities he did in looking at the scripture, when we look at the New Testament authors to see how they actually reproduce the Old Testament scriptures and the kind of paraphrasing and alterations that they could do to it. If they're willing to do that with the Old Testament scripture, of course, they're going to be willing to do that with the words of Jesus and what happened. But they're just doing the same stuff that other ancient biographers and historians did. We should not pause at that. It's just a matter of understanding ancient biography. We may not be able to come exactly and and derive what we would have seen precisely had we been there and videotaped or taken photographs of the events. We look at the Gospels as they are producing an accurate gist of what Jesus said and did on various occasions. And I think once we recalibrate our thinking with that, then the Gospels become clearer and these discrepancies just melt away. Yeah, I think you've given us some excellent tools to do that. So we really do need to factor into our reading these questions of genre and convention of the day. And we need to be sensitive to that, not immediately react and say, oh, well, I don't understand that. There's something really wrong here. But we need to take those things that you've said and really have those in the at least in the back of our minds when we're thinking about these things and uh, sort of put the questions on the shelf and say, well, maybe the future light will come to uh, get rid of that particular problem with a little bit of extra research. So I'm very grateful to you for joining us to lead us down this particular pathway because I think it's a very valuable one for us to follow. Um, Now, you have a website called Risen Jesus. Uh, Do you have lots of resources on there that could help people continue to research in this? I do. I have a number of lectures on uh, the Gospels and on on just various things. I have short videos I call musings. And, you know, when you just see some things in the ancient literature, you have some thoughts. They're like three to four minute videos that just, you know, try to provide some insights. A number of my debates with Bart Ehrman and others, uh, atheists, agnostics, liberal Christians, Muslims with whom I've had public debates, uh, the videos and audio recordings of those are on my website. Do you have articles up there and book lists and that kind of thing? I don't have book lists, but I do have a number of articles. Some are very popular, some more academic. In fact, uh, one of the questions you brought up, Julian, had to do with historians investigating miracle claims. And in the December issue of last year for the Journal for the Study of the Historical Jesus, I actually had an article there that uh, critiqued the view or proposition of one of my colleagues who said that we should go by a methodological naturalism that keeps miracle out of it. And I criticized that view in that journal article. So it's an academic article that interacts with those kind of uh, arguments. And that is posted on my website for free viewing. Oh, that sounds fascinating as well, actually. That is a very interesting question, actually, isn't it? Yes, should methodological naturalism always be followed, or is it, in fact, well, a bit of a red herring? Um, I think that's something I need to look at here on the the podcast. Um, What resources would you generally recommend? I mean, I read many years ago, actually, Craig Blomberg's book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, and I think half of The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel. Would you recommend those or other resources? Oh, I definitely would recommend those two books by Blomberg. Um, If I had to read only one book on the historical reliability of the Gospels, 
it would be that book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels by Craig Blumberg. Mm-hmm. And in 2007, he came out with a second edition. He expanded it quite significantly, and it is just a phenomenal book. Oh, wow. So nice. I think that's a great book. Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham, I think, is a, a fantastic book. I mean, there's, there's just a, a number of great ones out there. Yeah. The Jesus Legend, I think, by Eddie and Boyd is a, is a very good one. I remember Craig Evans saying that that's the kind of book he wishes he had written. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's just the recommendation. Certainly. Yeah, but uh, the one book I think is the best one is The Historical Reliability Gospels by Blomberg. It's just, it's really a good book. Oh, I've got to get that, definitely. <laughs> well, as I said before, thank you ever so much, Dr. Lacona, for coming on. It's been wonderful to speak to you, and it, is, it really has been. I mean, I often say, you know, it's a fascinating conversation, but this has truly been fascinating because there are so many useful things that you've said to us here, and I think it's going to help people, it's certainly going to help me, but I think it will help a lot of other people as well. So, thank you ever so much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Well, thank you, Julian. I've really enjoyed it. You've been a a great host, and um, this has been fun. Let's do it again sometime. 